This evening we find ourselves in the middle of a four-week series on the subject of Christian apologetics. As we begin this second study, it'll first help you to remember that Christian apologetics, this is the term we use when we refer to the reasonable arguments that we offer to those who want to know why we believe what we believe. Christian apologetics is based on the goal of defending the gospel message while simultaneously helping unbelievers to see that there are many good reasons to embrace the Christian faith. And I should also remind you that we've all been called to defend the faith with Christian apologetics. Remember, it was actually in our study last week when we considered uh, the, the command that Peter presented. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. There he declares, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Simply put, every Christian has been called to always be ready or to be prepared to give a defense, or in other words, an apologetic argument to those who ask us to give them reasonable explanations for why we believe what we believe. And with that being the case, it's my hope that this study will help you to be ready with a reasonable response whenever that unbeliever asks you to defend your faith. And with this as the goal, it's important for us to remember here that there are different apologetic methods that we can use as we set out to defend our faith. These methods include the classical approach, which we considered last week, as well as the evidential approach that we're considering tonight. And then the next two studies will be on the presuppositional approach, followed by the cumulative case approach. Now, by way of review, it'll help you to remember that we began the series with a focus on the classical approach. And uh, just, just to remind you, you know, classical apologetics, it's a deductive defense that begins with a focus on natural theology, uh, which are based in arguments that uh, are designed to prove the existence of God. And so you're basically beginning uh, with, without evidence for God, then you're, you're, you're attempting to present logical arguments as, as you attempt to prove the existence of God. Uh, and then once the theistic worldview is established, the classical apologist will then begin to make a case for the gospel message, which is centered around uh, the who and the what of Jesus Christ. Or, or just to sum it all up with simplicity, uh, the classical approach argues from nature to the creator and from the creator to our savior. Well, that was our study last week, and now here in our study tonight, we're going to focus our attention on the evidential approach. And I should first point out that evidential apologetics is primi primarily inductive in its logical form. And just for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that inductive arguments are based on an appeal to concrete facts. Inductive arguments utilize empirical evidence in order to build a case for a given proposition. Therefore, uh, the Christian who employs the evidential approach in their arguments they're actually using factual data in order to demonstrate the probability of the proposition that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now, in order to better grasp this apologetic approach, I want to consider the apologetic approach that Jesus employed in order to prove his resurrection. And with this as our focus, let's open our Bibles to the 20th chapter of John's Gospel account. And as you make your way to John chapter 20, I want to take a moment to point out that the disciples of Christ they didn't fully understand that the Lord Jesus was supposed to die and then rise again on the third day. Now, uh, you know, their, their failure to grasp this wasn't uh, for lack of information. Jesus told them repeatedly that he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. 
And while it's true that the Lord prophetically revealed these things before they occurred, uh, the apostles still didn't get it until after the resurrection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, look with me here at John chapter 20. I want to draw your attention there, beginning at verse 24. Here John recounted the testimony of Thomas by declaring this. He says, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, here in these verses, uh, we learn about the skepticism of the Apostle Thomas. And while Thomas tends to get branded as doubting Thomas, and this is kind of a slight against him as if you know, all the other disciples were so quick to believe and yet he alone was the, the skeptic in the group, that, that certainly wasn't the case. I like to call him skeptical Thomas because I believe he had a healthy skepticism of the claims surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I can personally relate with this, and the reason why is because you know, I firmly believe that extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. The extraordinary claim that Jesus has risen from the grave, well, it demands extraordinary evidence, and that's exactly what Thomas was asking for. He wanted to see the evidence before believing. Thankfully for Thomas, the Lord Jesus was happy to present his disciple with the evidence that he was requesting. Let's consider how John puts it here in John chapter 20. If you would, let's pick up at verse 26 where John writes, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Wow. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He shows up in, in, in a room that had a locked door, which uh, seems to suggest that he somehow uh, you know, just kind of appeared in the room or walked through the wall. We don't really know exactly how this all went down. But, but he shows up and he presents Thomas with the empirical evidence that the apostle had been asking for. And while we can't say for certain if Thomas actually inserted his hands in the wounds of our Savior, what we do know is that the empirical evidence helped Thomas to replace his skepticism with saving faith. I should also remind you of something that Luke wrote in Acts chapter 1. It's in Acts 1 where we learn that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. After his resurrection, Jesus showed up and presented himself as alive, and he presented his disciples with many infallible proofs. And Luke also tells us that this wasn't just one occasion on one day. No, Jesus presented these many infallible proofs over the course of 40 days before ascending into heaven. He gave them 40 days to see the evidence of his resurrection. And in this way, Jesus was using the physical evidence of his resurrected body in order to convince his disciples that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah. In order to prove my point, look with me there at John chapter 20. We'll pick up at verse 28. Here John tells us that Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here in these verses we find Jesus, he's acknowledging the fact that the physical evidence of his resurrection was the empirical proof that convinced Thomas to believe in the gospel message. 
And while it's true that Thomas was blessed as he believed the evidence that had been presented to him, well, it's also true that the Lord Jesus then went on to proclaim a blessing upon those who believe after receiving the testimony of those who were witnesses of the resurrection. You see, Jesus understood that you know, the, there was this limited window, the, these 40 days when people could actually you know, examine the physical body. Jesus ascended to the Father, and there he's preparing a place for us. And now everyone who believes in him, we have to believe uh, you know, the testimony of others. Thankfully, that's what uh, the word of God is for. As a matter of fact, uh, let's consider the point that John goes on to make here in these verses. If you would look with me there at John chapter 20, beginning at verse 30, here John declares, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Here in these verses we find John, he's making a case for evidential apologetics, and he does this by encouraging us to realize that the four Gospels were written so that we might have the eyewitness testimonies of, of the historical facts surrounding the life, death, and burial, and the resurrection of our Redeemer. Therefore, the Christian who employs an evidential approach to apologetics well, we ought to begin with an appeal to the evidence of eyewitness testimony, which we find right here in the Gospel of John. In order to further grasp this use of, uh, the use of this approach, I want to consider the argument that Paul presented to the Christians in Corinth. If you would, let's turn in our Bibles now to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you make your way to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I should take a moment to point out that it was around 55 AD when Paul wrote this letter to the Christians who were there in Corinth. What this means is that Paul wrote this letter 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. What this also means is that the letter was written at a time when most of the eyewitnesses were still alive. Therefore, it was still possible for people to actually go and check the sources. They didn't have to go check out a questionable site like Snopes. You know, they, they could actually go to the source and, and ask these eyewitnesses, did you really see Jesus after he rose from the grave? Now with that in mind, I, I want you to look with me here at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Paul declares, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as one, by one born out of due time. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul appealing to the evidence of eyewitness testimony. And according to Paul here, we learn that there were more than 500 eyewitnesses, most of whom were still alive at the time when this letter was being written. And according to Paul, those eyewitnesses were ready to attest to the facts surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
In this way, Paul was using the evidential approach to Christian apologetics by appealing to the evidence that comes from eyewitness testimony. At the same time, Paul knew that the resurrection of Jesus could be easily dismissed as nothing more than just a strange event with no other spiritual significance to speak of. You know, we hear about strange things happening all the time. Near-death experiences and, and, and things that can't be explained. And, and, and most of the time, these things are, are you know, uh, events that occur and there, there, there's, there's nothing significant about it except just for the fact that something strange happened. Entire TV shows are, are made about these strange occurrences. And we hear about it and go, huh, that's peculiar. You know, file that away in the X-Files and move on about our day, Right? Paul understood that the resurrection of Jesus could easily be dismissed as just a strange event that some people were talking about. And it's for this reason that here he tethers the eyewitness testimony of Christ's resurrection to a theological framework that's found in the Old Testament. In other words, Paul connected those eyewitness testimonies to the Old Testament scriptures that prophetically pointed to the death, burial, and resurrection of the promised Messiah. And in this way, he was basically saying, hey, all these things occurred because, hey, this is what God had already revealed should occur. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to begin reading at verse, uh, verse 1 there again. Here Paul again declares, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ, notice, died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. In these verses we find Paul, he's appealing to the Old Testament Scriptures, the, the, the Scriptures that prophetically pointed to the death and the burial and the resurrection of our promised Messiah. And according to Paul here, the eyewitnesses were there to confirm the fact that Jesus has in fact fulfilled the Messianic prophecies found in the Old Testament. Now, in order to further grasp the power of this argument, we should take some time to consider the scriptures, or at least some of the scriptures that Paul was referring to. It's in Zechariah chapter 11 where the prophet Zechariah tells us that the Messiah would come and be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And in Matthew chapter 26, the apostle Matthew tells us that it was the apostle Judas who fulfilled this prophecy. He received 30 pieces of silver after promising to betray the Lord Jesus. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. In Psalm chapter 22, King David prophetically described the way that the Messiah would die, which included the piercing of his hands and his feet. This was uh, written before crucifixion was even invented. David also tells us in the same psalm that, uh, that his persecutors would gamble for his garments and divide his clothes among, uh, amongst themselves. And in Matthew chapter 27, Matthew tells us that these events were fulfilled to the T on the day when the Lord Jesus was crucified. It's in the 16th psalm where David also describes the day when the Messiah would rise up from the grave. And in Acts chapter 2, we find Peter assuring his audience that the Lord Jesus fulfilled this prophecy on the day when God the Father raised Jesus up from the grave. In order to further grasp the point then that Paul was making by uh, tying the death, burial, and resurrection to the scriptures, it's important to understand that there are actually more than 300 prophecies found in the Old Testament which were designed to help us identify 
the promised Messiah. And with that being the case, one of the best evidential arguments for the Christian faith, it's based in the eyewitness testimonies that we find in the New Testament, coupled with the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. When we take the prophecies in the Old Testament and couple them together with the eyewitness testimonies of the New Testament, we see that together we have an incredible event which was prophetically revealed before the fact. And together, this evidence provides us with the certainty that the Lord Jesus is in fact the promised Messiah who was revealed in the Old Testament. But now before you think, well, you know, case closed, I mean, this, this is sure to convince every person. Well, not so fast. Please understand that this argument isn't going to go unchecked by the skeptical unbeliever. I can assure you that uh, those who are antagonistic to the Christian faith will be quick to insist that, well, you know, the Bible's been changed so many times that we really can't trust that those prophecies actually, you know, predate the life of Jesus Christ. They could have been doctored after the fact. We must confess that a post-event prophecy is not a prophecy. If, if the prophecy was written after the fact, that's no longer a prophecy. That's just, you know, writing history. So are the Old Testament prophecies provably written before the birth of Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. The evidence is once again on our side. The proof of this can be found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint. This Greek translation of the entire Old Testament was completed more than 100 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And with that being the case, we can say with all certainty that the Messianic prophecies that we find in the Old Testament were provably written before the birth of Jesus. And they didn't get doctored after the fact. They didn't, they didn't get manipulated so that it better lined up with what Jesus actually did. No. We know that these prophecies in the Old Testament were written before the birth of Jesus Christ, and we know that the prophecies that we have today are accurate to uh, the manuscripts that predate Jesus. Well, in response to this, many skeptics will insist that the New Testament then was probably written several centuries after the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, many will say that, you know, they, they were, you know, uh, word of, uh, word, you know, uh, verbal testimonies that were passed along, you know, from mouth to ear, mouth to ear, like a telephone game. And after a few centuries of that, you know, the, the historical Jesus kind of uh, was transformed into this mythological, biblical Jesus. And they want to put the, the, the writing of the New Testament books later. And the reason why is because when there's a large gap of time between the event and the written record, uh, you know, the eyewitnesses are no longer alive, and so there's no one to really contest the mythologies that are created. Therefore, uh, many insist that the biblical account of Jesus must have been written in the 3rd or 4th century, which then would provide enough time for the historical Jesus to be transformed into the mythological, biblical Jesus. Now, you know, that, that would be a pretty good argument if that lines up with the facts. The only problem with this skeptical argument is based on the fact that the manuscript evidence actually proves otherwise. As a matter of fact, we actually have close to 6,000 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts of New Testament books. We also have 10,000 Latin manuscripts as well as more than 9,000 manuscripts in other ancient languages, including Slavic, Ethiopic, Coptic, and Armenian. 
And just to sum it up, listen, we have close to 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, many of which can be dated back to the 2nd and 3rd century. And seeing how manuscripts are copies of the original autograph, well, then we know we've already got copies of the New Testament by the 2nd century. Not only that, but listen, another interesting fact is this, that the church fathers were notorious for quoting the scriptures found in the New Testament. Notorious for, for quoting the books of the Bible. As a matter of fact, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament from their quotations alone. We can take just the writings of the church fathers, and every time they say they're quoting a New Testament book, we can take that out, and we can put the entire New Testament back together just from the quotations found in the writings of the church fathers. As we consider all of this empirical evidence, uh, we can say with all certainty that the books of the New Testament were all written during the first century. And with that being the case, we can be certain that the biblical Jesus and the historical Jesus are one and the same. How do we know this? Well, there's no time to create mythology. The evidence proves that these books were written in the first century, and that's not enough time to turn a historic individual into a mythological individual. What the manuscript evidence also proves is is that the Bible hasn't been altered over the years. The Bible that we have today is 99.9% accurate to the oldest manuscripts, which, remember, many date back to uh, the early 2nd century. And therefore, when the skeptical unbeliever tries to tell me that the Bible's been changed over time, and, you know, with all the translations that we have, you know, it's just King James came along and just kind of changed everything. And and, and so we, we can't really know that the Bible that we have today is the same as... When I hear these arguments, I just present one simple question to them. Show me the evidence. They want me to show them evidence, so now I'm going to ask you. Show me the evidence. Show me the manuscripts that you're talking about. If there's evidence that the Bible has been changed, I want to know it. Show me the evidence. Where are these manuscripts that say something different than all the manuscripts that we have. You know, I have yet to meet the person who's able to produce the manuscript evidence that the Bible used to say something else. Not one person has ever offered me any proof that the Bible's been changed. And yet they believe it without evidence. But with evidence, so few are willing to believe that the Bible hasn't been changed. To sum it up with simplicity, listen, there's more evidence for the Bible's authenticity than for any other antique writing. And since there's good reason for us to believe that the books of the New Testament were written there in the first century, then it only stands to reason that we have an accurate uh, account, we have accurate information from eyewitness testimony, and these eyewitnesses were committed to creating this historic record of everything that Jesus said and did. And what this also means then is that the evidential approach to Christian apologetics is a very powerful way to help skeptical unbelievers to realize that there are great reasons for believing in the gospel message, that there are great reasons for believing in the story of Jesus' birth, life, miracles, death, burial, and his resurrection. When you also factor in all of the 
archaeological evidence that supports the historicity of the Bible, all of the archaeology that, uh, you know, that, that you know, provides us with empirical evidence that, that the, the Bible is accurate to archaeology. Listen, those who are truly open to evidence... Well, once they look at all the evidence, they'll be forced to agree that there is enough evidence to conclude that the resurrection of Jesus is one of the best attested facts in all of ancient history. At the same time, it's also important to realize, though, that a person can intellectually accept all the facts while simultaneously failing to repent and receive by faith that free gift of grace. But this is our focus. If you would, let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 2. And as you make your way to the second chapter of James' epistle... I want to take a moment to remind you that there were many Jews who saw the miracles of Jesus during his earthly ministry. During the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus healed a bunch of people. He brought people back from the grave. He healed the blind and you know, loosed the tongue of the mute. And Incredible miracles occurred. And Jews all throughout Israel saw these miracles. They witnessed the evidence of our Savior's power and his majesty, but rather than believing, many of them cried out for his crucifixion. They had all the evidence that they needed to believe who Jesus is. And yet in the face of the evidence, so many of them rejected Jesus Christ. And what this means is that evidence doesn't always result in real repentance. I want to consider how James puts it here in, sec- in, in the second chapter of his epistle. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 19. Here James declares, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Here we find James helping his audience to understand that a person can believe all of the correct things about God and yet still fail to embrace the salvation that occurs when a person truly repents and trusts in Jesus Christ. Even the demons believe, and I would even argue that they believe it even more than anybody here tonight. The demons have a perfect understanding of who Jesus is and what he's able to do. We even find Jesus approaching a demon-possessed man, and the demons cry out, you know, please, Jesus, don't torture us before the time. They knew exactly who he was and what he was capable of doing. Even the demons believe. We must not equate intellectual assent to the empirical evidence with the saving faith that leads to a changed life. A person can believe in all of the facts surrounding the story of Jesus and still fail to rest in his finished work. Not only that, but it's also important for us to understand that we can't, nor is it our job, to argue someone into the kingdom of God. In order to explain what I mean, let's turn our Bibles now to John chapter 6. And as you make your way to the sixth chapter of John's gospel account, I want to take a moment to relieve the pressure that many of us might feel 
as we consider the, the goal of going out and leading someone to the Lord, as we consider the concept, you know, of, of going out and presenting, you know, evidential arguments, you know, to, to a, a, you know, an, maybe a, a angry unbeliever, a skeptic who's ready to, you know, argue back, you know, that, that, that can kind of concern us. We can kind of get worried about this. And, and, and one of the greatest concerns that I've heard, uh, you know, Christians sharing with me is, you know, I, I, I just don't want to fail. There, there's a fear of failure when it comes to evangelism. And I would suggest that the only real failure in evangelism is the Christian who doesn't go evangelize. You see, we haven't been called to go and, and, and you know, argue someone into the kingdom. We've simply been called to go out and share the gospel message. Their response is between them and the Lord. We're successful when we simply go and preach the gospel message. And so hopefully that relieves any fear of failure. Please understand that we're only responsible for planting seeds and watering seeds. It's the Lord's responsibility to produce the fruit and give the increase. Let's consider how Jesus puts this here in John chapter 6. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 63. There in John 6, verse 63, where Jesus declares, he says this, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Now, uh, here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his audience to understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives new life, and he gives new life to those who embrace the words of Jesus Christ because the words that Jesus speaks are spirit and they are life. And while it's true that God the Father is the one who draws us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can hear his words, it's also true that the Holy Spirit is the one who has revealed the words of eternal life through the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, a person uh, you know, must not only you know, you know, believe evidence that they, they receive, but, but listen, the evidence has to bring them to a place you know, where they're ready to receive what Jesus has said. I like the way that Paul described all of this in Ephesians chapter 1. I think he puts it succinctly when he, when he encourages the Christians in Ephesus by declaring this. He says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Christian, listen, a person is born again, or, or we might say a person is born from above or born of the Spirit after they embrace the word of truth, which is the gospel of our salvation. While it's true that evidential apologetics is an excellent tool for helping skeptics to see the evidence for our faith, it's also true that a person can believe all of the evidence without actually embracing the faith. It was 1995 when I was challenged to consider the evidence for the Christian faith. I spent some time researching the evidence and actually came to believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually occurred. I intellectually believed the evidence. 
I was convinced in my mind that Jesus rose up from the grave proving that he is the promised Messiah. And yet at the same time, there was still a battle raging in my heart because I knew that Jesus was Lord. I just wasn't ready for him to be my Lord. I knew that he was the risen Lord. I just wasn't ready to submit my life to him. You see, I had an intellectual belief that Jesus was God incarnate. I just wasn't willing to submit myself to him. As a few months passed, there came a day when the Lord helped me to see my sin. And I saw my sin against the backdrop of his holiness, and I knew for certain that I deserved hell and that I was dangling over the fires of hell by a, by a thin thread. And it was on that day when I finally repented and, and received by faith that gift of grace that Jesus freely extends to every single person. At that point in time, the intellectual assent gave way to saving faith. And I was converted. Now, in light of my experience, I can't help but to think of the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. It's Matthew chapter 16 where the apostle Matthew tells us about this day when Jesus asks his disciples saying, who do men say that I, uh, the, the, that I the son of man, am? Uh, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Christian, listen. Flesh and blood did not reveal that truth to Peter. But God the Father revealed this to Peter. And in light of this, I just want you to understand that we can go out and present people with all the best evidence, and we should. We can offer people all of the best arguments, and we should. We can go out and help people to see that the Bible is reliable and that we can trust the testimonies and, and that there's good prophetic reasons to see that it is most probable that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. We should. At the same time, it's important for us to remember that evidential apologetics can only bring a person to a point of intellectual belief. And that's good. And we should. But at the same time, it's important to understand that uh, we can give people all the best evidence and help them to become intellectual believers, but until they take a step of faith and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, it's just demon faith at that point. It's an intellectual understanding of the facts. But we must challenge the people that we're reaching out to that it is their responsibility to invite Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. At the same time, we must recognize that God the Father must reveal this to them. And therefore, we need to be praying. 
It's not enough to just go out and win arguments. It's not enough to just go out and, and, and you know, stump the chump, so to speak, and, 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 and present the, the best argument so that we walk away and feel like, well, we, we won that argument. What does all that matter if the person goes away lost? And so I'm a huge fan of evidential apologetics. It's one way that the Lord brought me into saving faith. But it's so important for us to realize that the real battle that's being fought is spiritual. Therefore, as we go out and present people with the evidence that supports our faith, let's make sure that we're praying for that unbeliever. Let's pray that the Lord might open their eyes so that they might turn from the darkness and so that they might turn by faith to the light of the Lord by faith in the the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.